Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers, knocking at my door. I wanna go out, I don't know if I can, cause I'm so afraid of the Tommy knocker man. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Tommy Knockers. The book that some critics claimed gave an authoritative voice to the angst of the last decade. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I trust it will provide us with a memorable finish. Reading us his latest work. Hosted by Arnie. The people in town, they really like me now. Stuart. He's not like us. He's dangerous. He could mean the end of us. And Jacob. I like a man who's ready for anything. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Kelly, don't swear. Listener discretion is advised. Are you ready? Am I ready? Is that your question? Am I ready? Today, we're reviewing... The Tommyknockers, starring Jimmy Smith's Marge Helgenberger, directed by John Power. This is the now playing co-host who's becoming right now, Arnie. And this is Jacob. See, I'm so good I could have been on Star Search. No, it was really Stuart, and you had no idea. I had my green voice changer on me. And this is your heroic poet, Jacob. I can't believe we have a heroic poet in this film. <laughs> Are there any other kinds? Yeah, unemployed mostly. Uh, bartenders, I believe, from Cocktail. <laughs> yes, 1993. How could I forget? My freshman year of college was coming to an end. It had been a tumultuous year as I adjusted to life out on my own. And Stephen King miniseries on TV. I had not seen that many movies in theaters because I was poor and didn't have a car. I was anxious for Tommy Knockers because I couldn't get through the book. I got the book as part of the Stephen King book club. You are the Stephen King fan, by the way. Like, you're the one who's supposed to read all the books, and you couldn't do it. Not in the 90s. I mean, it came out in the late 80s in part of what they called the Stephen King Firestorm, where he did four books in 12 months, including it and this. And I got this one probably in 1990, 91, and tried to read it a couple times. Couldn't. So I'm like, yes, they're making a movie of it. Jimmy Smith's I Love L.A. Law. So <laughs> I'm there. Now I don't have to read the book. I'll find out what it. Tracy Lords, I love her. <laughs> I knew that had to be. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> the last time she was on primetime television. It's that acting. you That's the real draw, isn't it, Arnie? Well, you know, I, of course, have never seen her adult work. Or, or is it the music career? <laughs> I actually legit like her music, no joke. And she's really fun in person, having met her a couple of times and just gotten to chit-chat. But no, I was liking Tracy Lords, the actual actress, even though I can never and will never see her adult work, so. But yeah, I was there the first night of this miniseries. I was anxious. And then night two, I, I remember kind of watching. You went back to night two after night one? My dorm had two TVs in it. That way we could, like, watch a movie while somebody else played video games. My memory is more of finally beating Sonic the Hedgehog 3 <laughs> while Tommy Knockers played. I think I only saw a bit of it. My memory was that I watched some of it, but honestly, I think the only thing I ever saw was the Coke machine attack. Like, that has stayed with me. <laughs> I knew that this movie had a killer Coke machine in it. Not for Maximum Overdrive. Right, yeah, because it's so scary, you can do it twice. There's so many layers. <laughs> but this was the book that broke me. I was a Stephen King fan until I picked up that book, 
and then I didn't read any more of his books for decades after Tommy Knockers. But I did read it for this viewing. I figured, what the hell? I probably suffered through worse, and I'm going to take a controversial stance. I don't think it's his very worst book. Oh, no, it's not his very worst book, but it's among them. I finally turned to the last page for this recording as well. I knew someday I'll have to do a Books and Nachos on it. So I locked down and I read that book and it's not his worst, but it's really in the running for worst. I was surprised because I am typically the Stephen King newbie here. I have not read the book. I hadn't seen this, but my wife had read the book. Like she, I think until Dr. Sleep, I don't know how much King has put out since Dr. Sleep. Oh, like seven or eight, nine books. <laughs> yeah, of course. But that is like the last one she read. Like, she's like, uh, I, th- I think he's kind of done. But she had read this one when it came out. Like, she got through the whole thing. She did not remember much because if she watched this TV movie with me, she was just shocked where it was going. But yeah, I'm the new one here. Well, it makes perfect sense to say this is when Stephen King hit rock bottom, literarily and personally. This is when his addiction was at its zenith. And he was passing out and having blackouts. And he said he barely remembers writing this book. (laughs) And much of the book can be seen as a metaphor for addiction. Uh, That's all the book is, right? Because that's how I saw this movie. It's about five different books. I'll weigh in and say I actually like (laughs) a few of them. What saves it from being the bottom of the barrel is there's elements of it I like. There's so much going on. But yeah, of course, it's got to have the alcoholic author as the central figure. I mean, I wish it weren't that story. But after this is when he finally joined AA and finally cleaned up for good and had writer's block. His big fear, the reason he told himself, you know, alcoholics have a lot of stories they tell themselves. But the reason he told himself he couldn't stop drinking and stop cocaine and stop Listerine is because he'd not be able to write as well. And it was after this book, I think he might have realized, I'm not writing as well on the drugs either. He has said this is his least favorite novel. And they changed quite a bit of it for the TV thing. He actually said that they improved his book in many ways. (laughs) I've got to ask, because this is a straight-up sci-fi story. I guess it maybe has the ghost of aliens possessing people, and maybe that's horror. But what was interesting was this really struck me as a sci-fi story, not a horror. Ghost, goblins, you know, all that stuff Stephen King is known for. Has he done straight sci-fi, not under the name Richard Bachman before? There were a couple of short stories in the Night Shift and Skeleton Crew anthologies that were straight sci-fi as well as psychological horror, but... Not much, and depending on what you want to take it as. I mean, Firestarter could be seen as sci-fi, given that they have a scientific reason for the telekinesis and all the scientific study of it, and really not much horror until the end with a bunch of flaming bodies. You know, I feel that Stephen King was at a point, though, where after It, which he said was going to be his ultimate monster story, he has written horror after then, but he started going into sci-fi and mystery and drama and really stretching out so that his works didn't feel like every single one was going to be an evil Mad Libs. Again, the book is many different things at once, and some of it is horror. I can recognize that he may have been reaching for something with having a UFO buried beneath. It did feel like an invasion of the body snatcher story. 
And the part I like best about it was it was a Chernobyl parable. I mean, that meltdown had just happened. And so it was kind of interesting to think about what would America do if on its soil it was using a power that seemed to produce all these great results, but also was causing people to have radiation sickness and lose their teeth and die. I mean, yeah, you could see that as a metaphor for drugs or cocaine, meth, whatever the hell King was taking. But I like the historical connection. Chernobyl is actually a subplot in the novel. He'll call it out directly. Not here, though, in this TV movie. There's so much you'd have to leave out of that book. It is 558 pages and probably 50 characters. I mean, one of the hard things about adapting it is there really isn't a central character. Like, there are just so many little vignettes and side stories and characters just continually new people just popping in to get killed or whatever that you can never get a fix on who the hero was supposed to be or what they're doing. I kind of disagree with that because so much time is spent in the beginning with Bobby and Guard, and then we get short bits with other people, and Bobby and Guard are mentioned in passing, but I knew that it would had to come back to them. To me, it felt like he was kind of trying to replicate Salem's Lot by having a big town with a lot of characters, all of whom are going to be in some way touched by the events that were going on, but not done as artfully as Salem's Lot, not done as well as Salem's Lot. And yeah, here we're going to get the, the stories in parallel. They're going to mix them all up, edit them, and show them chronologically. And if it feels a little disjointed, though, Stuart, a lot of that middle was just short stories. Yeah. One for sure was published in Rolling Stone called The Revelations of Becca Paulson was a short story he wrote. And if you got one of the limited editions of Skeleton Crew, only a thousand were printed. It was in there. But other than that, it's never been in any Stephen King collection. I got a copy of Rolling Stone through eBay, read it. Did he just straight up put that short story into the novel? Because I read about this. Like, he he loved that short story so much, he wanted to, I, I don't know, publish it again? Well, he could have published it again in the regular Skeleton Crew if he loved it that much. But in the short story, Becca Paulson finds a gun and accidentally shoots herself in the head, and the bullet in her brain makes her telepathic, and then she electrocutes her husband. Stephen King rewrote it to update the TV shows they watch because in the short story it was Charlie's Angels and they updated it to Miami Vice in the book. <laughs> that seems like just a matter of years. And then they changed it from the gunshot to the Tommy Knockers, but I mean, word for word the same for large sections. And, you know, Stephen King writes about characters having drawers of unpublished work i gotta think stephen king had a drawer of unpublished work he's like all right da, 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 this person got electric it's the tommy knockers now and da, 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 da. all right this person got hit by a ghost it's tommy knockers now and just inserted a whole bunch of short stories yeah and that wouldn't necessarily be a complaint i do feel like Yes, Salem's Lot is probably my favorite King novel, and part of it is because it takes a look at small-town New England and, and sees evil and rot there. I mean, it's it's just a good theme. It's also the theme of It, which is, I'm guessing, why they felt like this could work as some kind of sequel to It, because that also had, like, a UFO that was buried beneath a town. That... Yeah, is that why they have officers from Derry keep showing up? Isn't that the town from It? Derry is also the town from Stand By Me. Oh, well, I always thought it was Castle Rock. Derry and Castle Rock and Haven are towns that King will use again and again. But I want to contextualize it because we're doing this in order of King publication. 
But if you weren't a King reader and you were just liking the Stephen King movies, on television, there had not been much Stephen King. There was Salem's Lot back in the 70s, and who really remembered it, although it was out on VHS by the late 80s and 90s. Then in 1990, we got It. 1991, they did Sometimes They Come Back for CBS. Oh, that's right. And then here in 1993, we got Tommyknockers. And why Tommyknockers? Part of it is rights. Again, when Stephen King was hot, every short story, every novel got optioned. And as he was writing, things would get optioned by studios before they were even published. So a lot of it was, well, this is what we can get the rights to. Wasn't it also, though, I mean, like X-Files and Unsolved Mysteries with all the UFOs? That was a big thing in the early 90s, and I think that would be a hot topic to make into a movie. That had to be a thought. I agree. that The fact that there's aliens in here, although I have to ask, Jacob, did you understand that it was a UFO? Like, I'm not sure I would have understood that watching this movie until the very end. I got that it was a UFO, you know, not how everything was playing out. I still don't understand how what they were doing by the end of this, these aliens. But, yeah, I get that it's a UFO. And if you want to look at it like that, Tommy Knockers was on the cusp because it aired about five months before X-Files premiered. Oh, okay, so that hadn't come out yet. But, yeah, there was a lot of those alien autopsy shows and things going on. Fire in the Sky came out in the early 90s. Yeah, I just remember early 90s was a big time for aliens. Whitley Strieber, the real-life alien connection with the Greys. You know, he wrote about communion and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, it was very trendy. I think the other thing is that they got some actual Stephen King vets to work on this. The screenwriter of Brian De Palma's Carrie and the It miniseries wrote this adaptation. Louis Teague from Cujo and Cat's Eye was going to direct. He actually started directing. He was fired on day two. Yes, I, I heard about that. And it makes me wonder, what choices were you making that they didn't like? Well, this was a terrible production. Doomed from the get-go. The ABC execs were like, we want Stephen King. We want him this May. And the executive producers of It were trying to get more Stephen King made because they'd had a big success with It. And they're like, okay, we got the Tommy Knockers. And they're like, okay, here's the budget you have. $12 million. You need to start shooting now because we're airing it this May. And they're like, it's October. So because it has to take place in the summer, they fly everything and everybody down to New Zealand <laughs> Set it all up there. And then Louis Teague is directing. And again, he did Cat's Eye, which we kind of liked, and Cujo, which we kind of liked. And he was moving too slow because they had 60 days and not a day longer. How slow is he moving if day two is when he gets fired? Yeah, that's. Uh, it sounds like, yeah, the execs just weren't happy, period. But yeah, the person that they end up getting greatest credit is a Charles and Diana TV movie. Like they just found some Australian that was available and said, you finish it. Yeah, it's literally whoever was closest. Yeah. <laughs> and so that does sound like a trouble production. They didn't even have a script. I pulled a Fangoria out as well from the time. It's the only thing I could find on it. I read this Fangoria article and somebody said to the reporter and asking for anonymity, but a cast member said, it would be great if we could see the full script. We're halfway through filming and the second part of the script isn't done yet. Right. What It, it sounds like an absolute mess that honestly... I watched this movie again, and then I read about the production. I'm surprised it came together as well as it did. 
Was it a hit? Did, I mean, I, I, I assume ABC got the ratings it needed in order to go forward with The Stand and The Shining and all the ones we've already covered. Because, again, this was their second effort with that. ABC did it, and then it was this. And I would have thought that would have ended, like, no more of this. <laughs> We're done with Stephen King. It aired after Home Improvement and Coach, which were, you know, strong shows back then. And it came in fourth for the week. I mean, that's not the Super Bowl, but it's not bad. It won its time slot. And Okay, yeah, that's all you can ask. It, won, it was the thing that people tuned in the most at that time. Yeah, I mean, and the second night had a, a big drop. <laughs> Always, right? That's every, like, again, I think I might have started this and then walked away. And then maybe the second night turned it on near the end to see what's going to happen and saw that Coke shit and was like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even remember there was a second vending machine attack in any of Stephen King's work. But that's how much I was paying attention in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> the idea so great, you just, you keep reusing it. And truthfully, why would I ever watch this again? Why would I ever think about this again? The Tommyknockers, the book, was never one I want to pick up after this. The Tommyknockers, the movie, I mean, I saw it 27 years ago, and I still feel like I'm rewatching it too soon. And yet, I only had two memories coming back to this, other than the experience of what I was doing while I wasn't watching part two. My only memories were Jimmy Smith's pulling his tooth out with a pair of pliers so that he could fit <laughs> in with the zombie types, and glowing green just permeating everything, like worse than Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, everything turned animated green. Yeah. Well, you remember more than I did, so that means you get to do the plot. Arnie, tell him what Tommy Knockers is about, and we can get through it. Jimmy Smits plays drunken poet Jim Gardner, or Guard. Down on his luck after a drunken brawl at a poetry reading. I'm going to all the wrong poetry readings. He goes to Haven, Maine to visit his sometime lover, novelist Bobby Anderson, played by Marge Helgenberger. But Bobby is not her usual self. She's manic and creating strange machines, like a typewriter that will type her thoughts. The strange behavior is brought on when Bobby discovered a crashed spaceship in the woods. The weird effect also starts to overcome some residents of Haven who have traveled in the woods. And at the 4th of July celebration, the fireworks turn green, and most of the town is overcome by this evil force that controls their actions. Bobby, being the first, is the group's leader. Their skin turns pale and starts to peel and their teeth fall out. Based on an old nursery rhyme, the town starts to refer to the aliens as the Tommyknockers. The group start killing the few people not possessed by the alien hive mind, except for Guard. Bobby won't let the others kill her lover, thinking he will become, meaning get taken over by the aliens, in time. But Guard has a metal plate in his head that makes him immune to the alien telepathic attacks. Guard pulls out one of his teeth to convince Bobby he's finally becoming, and he takes Bobby out alone to excavate the ship. On board, they find only dead aliens who appeared to die while in combat with each other. They also find some of the missing townspeople hooked into pods. These humans are providing electricity to the aliens. One alien comes back to life and attacks Guard, but he beheads the alien. This wakes Bobby out of her mind control, and her teeth are magically back too. The town people start to descend upon the spacecraft. Bobby goes out to stall the rest while Guard straps himself into the pilot's chair. The ship is controlled by telepathy, so Guard flies the ship up into space, then has it self-destruct, killing himself. The residents of Haven that were still on Earth all recover and presumably resume normal lives as credits roll. 
I didn't understand anything at the end, but I guess we can start at the beginning where I did understand some stuff. Yeah, I think it's probably best they picked a main character. I think it is wise to make Jim Gardner, you know, Jimmy Smith, the biggest star in this miniseries, the draw. He was on a top 10 show and a pretty good actor. Is that why he's not a Benjamin Bratt? I I had Benjamin Bratt on my mind because we just did that in Drama to Stray. But Jimmy Smith, like, yeah, he played Bale Oregano, I believe you called him in Star Wars, Stuart. But Jimmy Smith, I, is he a draw because of Law and Order? Is that his claim to fame? And this was right after he quit L.A. Law. L.A. Law. Okay, that's the law show he was on. He quit in 92 when he was at his hottest, you know, and around this time he'd do some movies and this was his first real return to television since then. So you could think people had a pent up desire for him. Real Jimmy Smith's demand for the television crowd. The only thing other than L.A. Law I'd seen him in at this point was Blake Edwards comedy Switch. Yeah, and he would go on to sub for the redhead that dropped out of NYPD Blue. Like, he took over for... David Caruso, yeah, and he was great on that. When Jimmy Smits died on NYPD Blue, I do not mind saying I wept like a child. Good to know. But did you weep seeing him struggle with alcohol addiction? (laughs) They're really going to give him all the drama stuff. Like, he's not in Haven at the beginning of this. They skip around to introduce everyone. But just to get his story out of the way, he's the one with the most realistic problems. He has been sober for a year. I I mean, he's a poet. I don't know how realistic his problems are. (laughs) He's having nightmares now. He's uh, lost in big engine woods and imagining his lover is turning green. Yeah, very realistic problems. I have that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having some weird dreams right now, but I've got to ask, do you guys know that Tommyknockers are a real thing? Well, all right, they're not a real thing, but did you know that they have a mythos that lives far beyond this novel? I was wondering this, and I did look it up because of this movie, because I'm like, it really struck me as like they were gremlins and I'm not talking about those movie gremlins but if you hear the World War II legends where like these gremlins would mess with the airplanes airplanes and cause them to crash and yeah Tommy knockers like they go before even that they would mess with the miners in England and like steal their tools yeah I had no idea until researching for this review I mean it's mentioned in the book that there's some nursery rhyme and then I yeah googled and yeah there is a nursery rhyme I assumed it was made up when they read that nursery rhyme in the movie yeah and then knock on the door they cause cave-ins like yeah they are the thing that explains why mining in this uh, region would be so dangerous i don't think king was trying to say i'm telling the story of those creatures by having that title you might assume you might have the scent taken away from aliens and you might think well if they live underground and they're causing problems for rural folk they are these kind of gremlin characters you might be surprised later when you find out it's a ufo full of dead aliens Maybe he should have picked a nursery rhyme more American <laughs> the 80s were familiar with then. Oh, yeah, or some kind of exposition explaining this myth, something like that. And he's going to do something very similar in the Langoliers, too, just... Oh, yeah, Langoliers. I remember my parents telling me those stories, tucking me into bed as a young child. Mm-hmm. No, just do kidding. You? I have no idea what a Langolier <laughs> is. <laughs> I, I'm shocked that's based on something real, if, if you're telling me that. Well, it's not based on something real, but the way the book handles it is similar to the way this book handles the Tommyknockers, is what I'm saying. But, no, to me, the Tommyknockers was Stephen King and only Stephen King. I had no other association with it. Yeah, this rhyme, I mean, I know that as the 
thing you do to shame classmates in grade school that are K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Yeah. You know, like that's like, I think they're going for a one-two Freddy's coming for you, but I think they've misappropriated. I don't believe this rhyme is real. I don't believe it's used to this melody at all. I never learned it. Let me put it that way. Sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, like that's what you do to this melody. It really doesn't matter about the melody because you're going to get some people reciting it here and there about the Tommy Knocker man. It's really disappointing that it never comes of anything and the aliens don't think of themselves as Tommy Knockers. The aliens weren't the ones knocking down mine shafts years ago upon which the legends were based. But, but again, it would have been helpful if one of the characters said, it's those Tommy Knockers again that are causing these problems. Like, Yeah, the, the old crazy coot that could go back to the mining days. Like, he's so old and like i remember when the tommy knockers took out a mine shaft i barely escaped something like that yeah you, you mentioned gremlins and then there is one character who has a history fighting world war ii and the germans and all that and they just briefly reference the mythology i think it would be helpful to know like what these things that are really unexplained not unlike it it is a, a power source that morphs and seems to have no definitive shape and I think for a while, for a long while, you're not to know what the root of that is. And calling it Tommy Knockers gives it an identity towards folklore that supposedly we should all know. Little Green Men. I do think King spoils it in the first part of the book by saying aliens. But the thing is, these aren't those Tommy Knockers. These aren't causing cave-ins. These aliens on the ship never got off the ship. They all die on the ship. Well, yeah, the gremlins weren't the ones causing the planes to fall in World War II either. Again, it's a name that gets appropriated from something we do understand in popular culture to something that is unknowable. Again, I'm going to say Tommy knockers are not in popular culture. <laughs> Maybe in England they are. Yeah, I, again, I don't think it's English. I think it might be regional. I think that if you went to New England, they probably, again, I didn't grow up around mines. So I didn't know miners, but if I did, I imagine they would know what Tommy knockers were. The reason why I found out it was real, by the way, a few months ago, I was touring Herbert Hoover's museum and they had one. Like, I was like, oh my God, this is a thing. But like, it was just kind of like a lawn gnome is what it looked like. And they, you <laughs> would just put them out. Yeah, I, in Wikipedia, it described them kind of like leprechauns, but with bigger heads and long arms. They sound kind of creepy looking. After this, I'd be embarrassed to tell people I had Tommy knockers in my garden. <laughs> the main characters, Guard is, this is a change from the book. He is in a committed relationship living with Bobby. They are two writers living in harmony together. This is probably good for television. Just make it cleaner. Don't make it a fuck buddy situation. It's much more nebulous in the book. In fact, that's not what it was. No, like, Guard had I, a wife and he shot her. Like they took from, oh, from like the beat poet, William S. Burroughs, you know, has a famous. Yes. William Tell story. Yeah. It felt like that was kind of what they were going for. When you talk about poet, I think of him as probably being a sixties hippie radical that was into beat poetry in Kerouac. No, th this poetry, this is very academia. When he reads his poetry, I'm like, oh boy, no, you don't have a career. This is awful. And that's kind of how he was written, too, in the book, is as an academic. He was doing tours and a, was a lauded poet, except for when he became a anti-nuclear radical. Jeez. 
that marries to me when I think about the beats, you know, like that era where like it was part of the politics that you didn't believe in nuclear power, like no to the bomb. We were worried about it dropping again, you know, with Vietnam, they were afraid Nixon or somebody was going to use that nuke. And so that was always a war protest chant. So, yeah, this is a hippie who you can call him a poet if you want. But, yeah, he is still living the 60s dream here. You're talking about the book, though, because I'm not getting this vibe at all from Jimmy Smith. This is a total yuppie. Yeah, exactly. Jimmy Smith cannot play hippie, especially coming right off L.A. law and wearing these suits. Yeah, you're describing Guard from the book. Guard in this movie does feel like a college professor. They call him a poet. Other than at the very beginning, it's not like he reads poetry or writes poetry or discusses poetry. Yeah. And yeah, the poetry is just so that we can establish this mean woman that causes him to drink again. He's on poetry tour, which I imagine is probably really hard to make a living at and uh, worried about reading his angry new stuff. So he goes to this sentimental poem that he dedicated to his lover Bobby, One More Mile, and she's mad at him, makes a snide comment. And the next thing you know, he's hitting gin and tonics and, and vodka straight up. I, I do like that he, like, goes to leave and just walks out a window that's, like, two stories high. <laughs> that was kind of awesome, actually. Like, you must be really drunk if you thought that was the door to get out. <laughs> but I do feel like they don't feel very committed in this movie either. The fact that he just kind of shows up after the brawl at the poetry meeting. What do you mean they're not committed? As a couple? I didn't feel like she was expecting him. They live together. They may even be married. Yeah, I didn't take them as married. I took it as like, he just shows up whenever he wants, whenever he doesn't have a poetry tour to go on, and (laughs) and they hook up. And I was shocked when she built a machine later on to write stuff for her. I didn't even get the idea that she was a writer. She's just always hanging out with that dog in the woods. Yeah, she writes westerns, and you would get that from this movie because they have one shot of her clacking away on a typewriter looking at a picture of a cowboy because that's, of course, how you write a western. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think I wouldn't have gotten any of this on my first viewing. This book is a long book. I had to read a good portion of it before watching this for this review, and I wouldn't have gotten so much of this without reading that book. I I think this beginning, what she does is incidental and inconsequential. What he does is also incidental and (laughs) inconsequential. It's kind of like those TV shows, like Friends, where they all say they have jobs, but they all are at the coffee shop the whole time. But they're always at Central Perk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but we're introduced pretty quickly to other characters. So the book is not the movie, and we're here to discuss the movie. Yeah, agreed. And I think probably I'm struggling like you, Arnie. To Part of why I even know what's going on is because the book will inform things that are underwritten. Here, you might just think that Bobby is the housewife allowing her husband to go off and be the writer she is going to be the one to walk the dog and get the plot moving she is the reason why everything kind of goes kaflooey she trips over some metal in the forest and starts digging how long has this ufo been underground thousands of years yeah it's not specific but Mm, and it's right at the surface though it's is it working its way up to try to get to people like i i have so much trouble when they're excavating this thing because it should be way deeper than it is I would have liked it if they'd had an earthquake or some development, you know, maybe they were digging to put in a power plant or something to explain why they yeah, literally just stumble upon it. But 
what I keep thinking is Stephen King was stoned off his ass and liked John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that definitely where my mind went. Yeah, and I do, too. So, like, that's fine. I mean, Stephen King is usually someone to take, you know, it's not like he invented vampires or even scary clowns. Like, he takes what other people are afraid of and crafts it, makes his own version of it. So if he wants to do The Thing, great, I'm on board. This actually starts to me feels more like Invaders from Mars. You know, the way that, like, when you go over the hill, you come back changed. I feel like anybody that goes into this big engine woods is going to come back now under the possession of this alien force. And there is a history of that in these woods. We'll find out later. And again, a lot of these townies that we'll eventually talk about, there's, you know, there's some kids and they're being told about these folklore stories about the woods. So it seems like this has been going on for a while, but no one's found this ship. No one's tripped over this chunk of metal before. And in the book, at least they make it that because Bobby uncovered it, it got in the air and blew towards the town. Here, they say these people just went in the woods. You got to figure if kids are playing in these woods and cheating lovers or having sex in these woods, these woods are pretty well populated and people would be having a lot more instances again if this was literally an inch under the dirt. Yeah, if you really want to know all of that, Jacob, there are I don't. <laughs> pages, reams and reams of the town's history, like starting from the early 1800s. It's the worst part of the book. It is It is the worst, most indulgent part of the book. King himself had said there's a good book in Tommyknockers if it had been half as long. And part of that half is the history of Haven that needed to go. But again, I think if, if the whole idea is to expose that small town America has got some dark underside, I'm always kind of up for that theme. I love Blue Velvet. I, I, I could go with that if that... It's been done so much, though. you got to bring a new twist. Well, I think they are. It, it's a green new twist. It's starting with the dog. The dog gets zapped, and all of a sudden <laughs> the cataracts over its eyes is melting off, and it's howling and glowing green at night. And when she takes it to the vet, which I've got to say, that poor vet is taking taking care of like owls and there's a cobra in there can you own a cobra a gila monster <laughs> and it's running free like I, yes. it's not even in a cage at least there should be a leash law for it <laughs> <laughs> you put the leash on i want to see that but yeah anyway the point is that yes we know that bobby and her dog have been touched and it will slowly be working its way anyone else that's going to walk into these woods they're going to come back not the same so they've wisely chosen i don't know if they're the best characters from the novel but the ones that are the most relatable so that we have a finite number of storylines to follow for a two-night miniseries but if you had done the book proper there are about 50 or 60 storylines about all the people that get influenced by these tommy knocker voices this really does come down to four stories. The main one is Bobby and Guard, and then there's three couples or groups, families in Haven that we follow, and that's it. They really boiled the hell down out of this. Well, it's always wise to have kids. I do feel like Stephen King's greatest fans, I, when I was my biggest fan of Stephen King, I was 12, 13 years old. So to have the storyline where the kid's going to be the magician and make his younger brother disappear, I think that's a good one. I think you want to definitely keep the Brown family. I can see that. And yet it reminded me so much of the Salem's Lot bit with the brother that turns into the vampire and scratches at the window. The one brother gets the other brother in trouble. And also the casting here. 
the worst ca- I don't know there's so much bad casting in this movie but up there for the worst has to be Robert Carradine Lewis from the Nerds he had just the <laughs> year before done the even worse than this movie Revenge of the Nerds the Next Generation made for TV movie that was supposed to launch the Revenge of the Nerds series that one's pretty bad yeah <laughs> He's rebounding off of that onto this. He is terrible in this. All I know is, like, if part of the horror is people's teeth are falling out, like, look out below. Like, here comes the avalanche. That guy's got some big chompers. (laughs) But, yeah, he doesn't make a lot of sense. I also will just say his character is poorly defined. He is running the town cafe, and he's very disappointed that his kids believe in magic and, I guess, aren't mature. Maybe they're not being responsible. It's kind of nebulous why he's mad, but he blames his wife's father for being a bad influence, for buying his elder son this magic kit, for getting them interested in the woods. Yeah, I didn't understand this at all. Why is he so mad over magic? I I know there's people that don't like magic, but they're still kids. Like, you like magic when you're a kid. Why is he so mad at his father-in-law? Well, it's the father-in-law. I don't have to stretch far to understand that. I mean, it's a trope. Yes, exactly. But again, it seems the design of this movie that we have a young kid who's trying to understand power. Again, this all is about alien power. He wants to learn to be Harry Houdini, and his grandfather is teaching him that he can learn how to make these magic tricks that will make him popular at school if they don't blow up in his teacher's face. And then all of a sudden, he's going to start hearing voices that make him actually a good magician. Through steampunk. (laughs) Everything here is steampunk neon green. Everything's foot pedals and D batteries. and Yeah, he took one of those old like foot pedal sewing machines and turns it into some (laughs) magic device that will make anything disappear and reappear. Yeah, I like steampunk, so I cringe. I winced. You you saying that, Arnie? I cringe a lot during this movie. Yeah, but I understand your point. The, The fact is what gets unlocked for people is that they can take everyday household items and suddenly rejigger them bathroom buddy style into some kind of amalgam that beyond our capabilities. I mean, that part is cool. The idea that our minds are being unlocked and we can do things we wouldn't normally be able to do. I like that as a concept. Except that has nothing to do with the Tommyknocker myth. Like they were just stealing miner shovels and helmets. I, I feel like this is much more appropriate for those World War II engineer gremlins that are taking <laughs> airplanes apart. Like I don't understand why all of a sudden they're all building machines. Right. And let's just jump to the end. And the reason why they're all becoming smart is because they're actually becoming possessed by aliens whose bodies have died and who are trying to find new humanoid type bodies to inhabit. Or to bring them back or to fix their ship. I'm never quite sure. I don't sure. know. I yeah. don't know how they're still alive and psychic if their bodies are dead. I'm so confused by the ending. It's really, really tough. I agree. But anyway, just to focus on Haley here, I, I'll just leave it on this. Major props for having a layer of the White Worm poster up. That was an awesome movie for me <laughs> as a kid. And that's pretty hip that he has that Ken Russell up on his wall. So I'm kind of with that storyline. I feel like of all the storylines, it's probably the one that I am the most hanging on to. It's funny, as you went to Lair of the White Worm, I was surprised he had Thor on his wall. Thor was so uncool in 93. But again, magic, and I mean, they're they're trying to tap into something there. Again, I don't think his uncle got him into that, but who knows? (laughs) 
I did like the story of the brotherly guilt of I didn't know where people went when they disappear and he can't bring his brother back because literally the batteries died. <laughs> they, they were there for making the radio disappear, but died before you can bring back the brother. Wait, that's why he didn't come back because the batteries died? I thought this was all a ruse to get that younger brother. Yeah, we I... <laughs> I, I gotta have a lot of questions, guys. Apparently, I missed a lot. Yes, I believe if uh, citing a movie I really like, Poltergeist. The reason why they talk through the TV to Carol Ann is because they're trying to lure Carol Ann into their realm and be their light. Are the aliens in any way attracted to Davy? Uh, we have one scene of them in the closet, kind of like wearing fluorescent talons and like uh, pawing at him or something. But I get the sense that the child is some kind of battery that will do something. And so, yes, they, they must have him. Everybody is some kind. I know. I know. I'm trying to help this movie. <laughs> Everyone's a battery, but maybe the youngest, most innocent child is the strongest light is the way I'm trying to read it. Let's just call it what it is, though. The Wachowskis owe Stephen King a paycheck. They ripped off Tommyknockers with The Matrix. Oh, please. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, were you not thinking The Matrix when you see pods with people used as batteries? No, I was thinking Blade 3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I get your point. But yes, because these are sci-fi tropes that many people borrow. I, again, it's, it's sifting through trash and recycled record stores. I mean, like, yeah, these are things that... All sci-fi writers pick up and go, well, maybe I'll run with this idea. Like, it's not fresh. I'll give you that. Were there human batteries before? I don't have a giant encyclopedia knowledge of science fiction, but I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like something that would be in a trashy sci-fi story from 1943. You know, yes. Well, my go-to for it was The Matrix, and so that's what I figured was going on here. And the the reason I'm pretty sure the batteries died is because the green light is shining bright when he steps that pedal and makes other things disappear and reappear. And then when he tries to make his brother reappear, the light kind of flickers and then goes out like a radio would when its batteries die or anything when the batteries die. So I thought it was literally just if he'd replaced those batteries, his brother would be back. No, I, I'm where Stuart is. I, I'm thinking Poltergeist, that this is a way to get this movie's Carol Ann. Yeah, we'll see at the end. They very clearly have him in a very special place where no one else is going. And thus, again, I think because he is the youngest character we meet and scared and, you know, he has the incident that introduces the sheriff of the town who inexplicably in giving a tour of her police <laughs> station also has a large collection of international dolls. Yes, in, a, in an old schoolroom, like she's just, yeah, brought all her dolls over. People from all over give her dolls because they know she has this collection. I'm like, oh boy, these are coming to life later, aren't they? But that's so true. As a Star Wars collector, how many times have people been like, I got you this rarity. And it's like, oh, you found this in a junk shop. <laughs> oh, yeah. I told people, don't buy me Star Wars stuff. I have it all. <laughs> so I, I could actually relate when she's like, oh, people know I collect it. So they all give it to me. I wish this had been played by Karen Black, who had a very famous TV movie with a. Oh, yeah. Trilogy of Terror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need someone campy for this. Instead, we got Joanne Cassidy, who is kind of the hot, sexy 
Zora from Blade Runner is, I think, what people most associate her with. To me, she's mostly Dolores from Roger Rabbit, and we also covered her in Grudge, too. And she's given this kind of weak storyline where she's loved the state trooper from afar. John Ashton, playing a cop, he plays a cop a lot, but I had to know, I looked it up, I'm like... Is this the reason he didn't do Beverly Hills Cop 3? Because I have a fucking something stuck in my craw against this man for not doing Beverly Hills Cop 3 when he was given a very good storyline and you have to bring in Hector Elizondo to do it. Was he too busy doing this piece of shit to not do that piece of shit? You have some real Beverly Hills Cops 3 thoughts. I can't wait till we get to that series. (laughs) But no, this is a full year before Beverly Hills Cop 3 would have even begun he just stayed away from it for other reasons but he's actually i can get past my bias john ashton is perhaps one of the better players here i actually believe his timidness when he's around joanna cassidy he's kind of shy because she was married to his partner who died and the way all the other cops are kind of giving him guff because it's very obvious that he's into this woman who collects the dolls I kind of like that best of all the storylines here of the minor characters. But very different from the tone of the book. I would say that Sweet is something you do on ABC television, but there was in short supply in the horrific, everyone in this town was awful, right? Like, it's kind of a strange thing. I mean, this woman ends up trying to blow up City Hall in the book. I agree. This one is very different and it feels really disconnected because John Ashton isn't even part of Haven. We, You know, this is all taking place in Haven. He's in Derry, the next town over. That's what I found weird is that he keeps having to travel over there. I'm like, is this so he doesn't get infected? They have a reason for him not to get the alien meth into his system. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it's the idea is like because he's a state trooper, he drives all over Maine. And so he can only drop in sometimes. And there's a whole backstory they barely mention here, but that he used to work with her husband who's been dead five years now. Barely mentioned. I feel like they drive it home too much. It's like really hammered in. It's mentioned by the guys and then it's mentioned when he finally goes a courting. He's like, I know it's only been five years and your husband was my best friend and yada, yada, yada. And But I again, I find it sweet from John Ashton's side. I find it weird that he's into this doll collecting spinster. I mean, he's not a young man anymore. You got to take what's on the table. Well, yeah, but it's not her age. It's the fact that the doll collection and John Ashton never... <laughs> that, that's just a warning sign to you? Like, you, you you pick up a girl for a date and she's got a huge doll collection? You're like, ah, okay, we're, we're ending this one early. Yeah, pretty much. It could be a problem. I mean, it might be. It, it could and be. likewise, if I were dating and the <laughs> women came to my house and saw the Star Wars stuff, she might turn around. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird to me that John Ashton isn't killed by the dolls, is what I'm saying, is for a little bit i was disconnected that joanna cassidy's character of ruth had the dolls and was a cop and had the dolls at the police station i think yeah no it was like the old schoolhouse too or something she's given this tour to school kids at the beginning like let's go look at the classroom and yeah it's full of dolls but yet you also have alice beasley as a deputy there taking phone calls in the room next to the dolls well she did that for three seasons of moonlighting miss DePesto. yes of course that's all i know her as is agnes DePesto, and she's better there than here i'll just say that but yeah john ashton's death by soda machine 
is lame. He needed to be killed in the Valley of the Dolls. Or maybe we eliminate all of this. I question the need to have a sweet storyline. I guess it just, it would hook the Murder, She Wrote audience or something. Like, you need to have something (laughs) for the 50-year-olds to to keep them interested. You're thinking, in terms of demographic, this is going to be something that's enchanting for a certain segment of the audience. But for me, it feels distracting. I want to see bad townspeople do bad things to each other. I don't need this. Yeah, only have have dolls that come alive but that's the main premise of your movie don't have it as a subplot well that's a stephen king thing too is he'll have all the horrors come at you and that was it and that was this and that was needful things yeah i don't like that (laughs) simplify in some ways it works out in some ways it's like whatever the worst horror is is coming for you for and it's personalized you know it's tailor-made but it was a bunch of kids and then a bunch of middle-aged people, but it didn't have anything for the grandmas out there. It didn't court the Murder, She Wrote audience. I don't think that would be the reason you do this. Oh, no. I, I think any time where you have casting this diverse, it's because you're trying to get every demographic. And again, let's talk about Alice Beasley. I mean, yeah, this character is from that short story you talk about. And she's a Jesus freak that, like, the Jesus on her TV starts talking to her, and it's Jesus that makes her kill her husband. Like, you want the darkness. You want that Tales from the Dark Side kind of malevolent twists going on. You want to feel like this is a town of, like, creepy Twin Peaks goings on, not like this is some Hallmark Channel place. Yeah, well, you're not going to get on network television and maybe not even in most movie theaters, evil Jesus telling you kill your husband. (laughs) No, it's going to be an evil game show host like this movie. Well, that's okay. I think that worked. Now, as a choice, if you're right, if that is too inflammatory for a certain segment, we don't want to see religion brought up in any kind of way that's offensive. Sure. The fact that she is lonely and attracted to a dating show and it is the host that's breaking the fourth wall and even the contestants are like... Like, yeah, you should definitely kill your husband because, of course, he's fucking Tracy Lords. I mean, what the hell? But why is Tracy Lords fucking him? Look, I don't <laughs> want to body shame anyone or anything like that. Maybe she's a sex addict. I don't know. I just don't see these two. Ho- I don't even know why Tracy Lords is working in a post office in this town. No. Yeah, it never makes any sense what's going on here. Totally different from the 50-year-old character as it was written. Again, they were only in, all of these characters were in maybe, what, five, six pages, and then they were gone. Like, they didn't have a storyline to go through the whole miniseries you sure they didn't have a porn version of this because like they are always just getting up on that (laughs) counter wash your mail off people if you're picking it up from this town it's covered in sex juice (laughs) yeah but tracy lords despite being out of porn she was a sex symbol you know you look at her roger corman film not of this earth she was a sexy nurse there she's having sex here I mean, she still oozed sex, even if she wasn't doing porn. But why in this town? Like, why is this character here? I get that. Yeah, that's the role you put her in. But I don't understand how she works in this setting. And why is she screwing the father from Flight of the Navigator? (laughs) Is that who this is? (laughs) Yeah, Clifton Young. She has a type because later she'll go for Robert Carradine. I don't (laughs) really know why she's into nerds, but she really is. Daddy issues. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, of course, it's in here because it's broadly drawn. And we can understand this is a bad person that we want to see die and is going to be doing extra evil things in the town. But ultimately, it feels like this movie is saying that only the women are hearing these. Like, women and kids and dogs seem to be the ones picking up on the Tommyknocker voices, and none of anybody else seems affected. 
Yeah, besides the guy at the gas station who makes the deadly vending machine, I think it's all women and kids making the machines here. I, Tracy Lords does make the best invention here, that laser beam lipstick. <laughs> yeah, which felt like it was not in Not of This Earth or maybe Repo Man, which he wasn't in. But one of those, two, those two movies feel <laughs> the same to me. And But before the 4th of July ceremony, I guess you're right. After the 4th of July, you know, Carradine is in on it. It seems like everybody's in on it. But at the beginning, yeah, Tracy Lords. The funniest thing is whoever's casting this, in the book, the Alice Beasley character of Becca is 45 and obese, and Tracy Lord's character is like 50 <laughs> here. I'm like, that is not what they cast. Yeah, that feels more realistic. I think they are thinking about demographics. They want to give something to the teenagers and, and yeah, the 20-somethings. And so, yeah, like, I don't know if she's a big get, but yes, to have something sexy here in Haven is probably much needed. And again, it's just so easy for them to equate a vixen with evil. It gives you someone to root against, really, and, and to get killed. I mean, literally, she's going to become the main baddie at the end, which is so weird. Keep in mind, she actually had a big moment with Crybaby a couple years before. I remember the commercials for this heavily selling Tracy Lords, and it got me to tune in. And I liked what she did in it, or back then. Now, I think she's doesn't really have much of a part, especially early on. She is just there to spread her legs for this guy constantly. Like, there's way too many sex scenes between them. No, that's what I'm saying. I think they were like, like we got to make our money somehow on this thing. We'll have a porn version, too, to put out. Yeah, and, and it's also going on with Bobby. Again, I think all the women are suddenly just, you might look at this and be like, oh, this is about women getting, like, carnal or something like that. Because Guard comes home, finally, he hitchhikes back from the Bender poetry reading, and she's, like, clawing him in the back and trying to take him over the hill and Invaders from Mars terminology. Is that a choice? Are we comfortable with that? I mean, this movie's so stupid, I could hardly be offended. But it seems like you want to have more varied people talking. You want you want to establish the rules. You want to understand why they can hear Tommyknockers and what the Tommyknockers are promising them. I mean, they are going to establish the rules, Stuart. They're stupid rules. I mean, they hear the voices because they don't have a metal plate in their head. No, no, I know. But what did Tracy Lords want is, I guess, what I'm saying. Oh, she, yeah. No, there's no motivations here. Yeah, she wanted to be pretty. And so she took the local lipstick that just got invented and, and modified it. And I think she invented some first-class male sorter as well. That's right. She does. I don't feel like this is a Faustian deal where these people are getting something from the aliens. I took this far more body snatchers. The aliens are taking them over and it's a slow process and it starts with mechanical steampunk knowledge. But I, the way I saw this was it's all about drug addiction. So what's in it for these people? Why do they want to take that first hit? And maybe it is because it makes their dreams come true. Bobby's able to create a typewriter that will just type her novels out for her. And that's the initial addiction. But I think you got to have a reason why these people are building each of those machines. Like that's the Faustian deal. That's why they're going to get addicted. Yeah, the kid wanted to be a magician. Uh, Bobby wants to complete this novel that she's stuck on. And so, yeah, I definitely think that that is the promise. It's why you want to get obsessive about those Tommyknocker voices. They're giving you something. I mean, what does Alice Beasley wants? She doesn't even know her husband's cheating on her. She wants her husband home. But she doesn't know he was cheating on her until 
the Tommy knockers give her psychic abilities. She wants to know what he's doing. And so they tell him and then they tell her what she should do about it. It's not very integrated because, again, she just drops out of this movie. No, she ends up in an insane asylum. No one else goes crazy. We don't even see her arrest. I mean, in the book, she burned down with the house. And again, I feel like there was just an impulse not to kill. Or like, if we're going to kill, it'll be just these a few jerks, like the, a few of these guys that deserve it. But we're not going to have the body count at all that the book relishes in. And again, I think you want in a horror story. And TV movie is where I'll go with that. You can't have a huge body count. And I think that's part of the reason why ABC liked this one, is it was more sci-fi, less horror, less gore. They didn't have to worry about not giving the splatter because the book didn't have a ton. Right, but that's taking away what was working in the novel, the things I did like about it, the monkey's paw kind of deals, and how it would blow back on these people was all of the fun of the middle of that book. Yeah, and some stories worked better than others, but here in this, I just view that they're being taken over, and it comes to a head at, of all things, the 4th of July fireworks. I don't know why the fireworks spread the disease more. Oh, I was just going to ask you, why, like, are the aliens in the fireworks? They're, like, hypnotizing people. I don't understand, yeah, like you, Arnie, why this 4th of July firework extravaganza infects everyone with alien juice. Yeah, all I know is that's the ending of night one, and night two, it does feel like body snatchers. At this point, everyone in town is in some secret conspiracy, and only guard is protected because he has a plate in his head. Yeah, he's not Wolverine, though. He doesn't have adamantium around his entire brain. I don't understand how a single metal plate is going to block every direction of psychic beams coming into you. Well, eventually, Bobby's going to say it isn't your plate. It's your, I don't know, your strength, your inner something. Maybe it's poetry. Who knows? Maybe they just didn't want him. You have no valuable skills. (laughs) But it wasn't just him. Anyone who wasn't at the 4th of July. So Grandpa of Hilly. He was in the hospital with Hilly because Hilly's been diagnosed as having a brain tumor, and maybe that's why he could do magic, or maybe the aliens gave him a tumor. So Grandpa is still not overtaken because of that, Yeah. and Robert Carradine's wife wasn't at the 4th of July, so she's not taken over, and she sees her husband making weird contraptions and making out with Tracy Lords because her first lover died, and she gets that weird, fun... I mean, it's fun moment when she goes to visit the grave and she's like my period of mourning is over and literally like it pulls off the overcoat and has the sexy red dress i did laugh at (laughs) that i mean it's pure batman 66 catwoman at this point i mean this is she just needed the claws right like this is julie newmar all over the place i wish it worked as that kind of funny thing like it does it neither works as a campy 50s alien invasion movie nor is it horrific tales about awful people in small town Maine. It's just kind of this garish, tacky, stupid, not very scary. At at what point do you think anybody looked at each other and said, okay, this is the part where we're going to make it scary? It seems like that wasn't even a thought here. No, because they were going for sci-fi. You could still have it scary. Like, I think if you're saying, hey, tune into Stephen King, you want something scary, that's what I associate with the man. Absolutely. And they did it. I mean, again, people love that miniseries, and they love those moments, and they try to do those moments with the doll attacking and all of that. It's just, they're just pathetic i mean did anyone really think that wow this is really going to blow them away they needed a tim curry i guess they needed somebody that could sell what they couldn't show 
Yeah, there is nothing scary like when those dolls attack and they're just tying Ruth's shoelaces together. I'm like, they're going to throw a banana peel out there too? What other <laughs> tricks do they get from Wiley E. Coyote? It did feel very Puppet Master. <laughs> yeah, but not enough is what I would argue. It feels like, oh, well, let's do that. And then the ABC execs look at it and go, oh, no, we, we can't do that. Let's cut away. I feel like anytime someone's about to have sex or be killed, commercial break time. Watching it this time, I know I sat through night one not paying full attention, and I turned on night two and paid no attention, but watching it this time, I watched it on the DVD, the commercial breaks are very obvious as it fades to black and comes back, and when night two ends, I gotta choose another chapter, the same opening credits, like people who died in night one are in the opening credits of night two, but what it made me realize is, after 30 to 45 minutes of night one, I'd turn this off. I really, really would. You'd last that long. Probably just to see. I'd wait for the plot to get going, and I'd be a little interested in where'd the brother disappear to and how skimpy will Tracy Lord's outfits be. <laughs> I knew it had something to do with Tracy Lord's. <laughs> But there is nothing in the world other than now playing that would get me to tune back in for night two of this. And, and again, I think part of the problem is like you need a unifying character, somebody that you enjoy seeing, even if the rest of this is not working. And God knows a lot about it. The miniseries didn't work, but people loved it whenever Tim Curry popped up. If only Jimmy Smith's had that kind of charisma here. He needs to be the glue holding this together, but I feel like his descent back into alcoholism and, and him fighting off becoming is not Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, him going back into alcoholism, we'll see different characters. Hey, uh, you got to go over to the bar if you want this piece of information. And, ooh, is he going to drink? Like, But it never feels like it plays out to mean anything, this alcoholism and overcoming it. If this is, Again, if this is a story about addiction... I think I'm more likely to shoot up than to stop drinking or doing drugs after watching this. And Carradine is not going to be the one to get me to sit down and have a drink. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, he's definitely the one to, like, clear out the bar. That bar is pretty empty when he goes in. He may have done that already. I don't understand what Jimmy Smith's character wanted from Robert Carradine that he would have this drink. Like, I would go with it more if he thought he could pump Carradine for information or something. Like, he's going to have the drink, but there's a reason. He's not even all that upset when he drinks with Carradine. He's just like, I'm here and Carradine knows I like vodka, so I'll drink it. No, but there's a lot of self-referencing in this. As you've mentioned, they bring up dairy. Someone says, oh, this dog is acting like Cujo. This scene is very clearly Lloyd the bartender from The Shining. I mean, it's just, let me probe into your problems, Jack, and we'll see if we can make you one of us. And it kind of works. I mean, in the sense that he ends up seeing the town's plot. He stumbles drunk to a gazebo, passes out, and when he wakes up, they're all by the church. And what are the aliens making them do? I think they're becoming like the Borg because they're all going to have a hive mind. But then as soon as they're done with the ceremony to give them the hive mind, they start arguing amongst themselves. So I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, it's said that the ship may have crashed because the aliens were bickering and that their warlike can't get along qualities might have been the reason why the ship ended up on Earth to begin with. When we get on board the ship, there is one really bad alien puppet with its hands around another <laughs> bad alien puppet's throat. 
Is that why everyone's a jerk to each other? Yes. Wouldn't it be better if these aliens just made everyone nice and you'd want to join them and you wouldn't question them? But it's a drug metaphor, so it makes you crazy. But wow, I didn't realize these aliens are just jerks and that's why everyone's jerks. And I assume it's a one-to-one relationship, but because we haven't gone down into the ship, they're saving that for the climax. I don't even know if people are going to know that this is a UFO. I really don't know if they know that. It doesn't look like one. In the book, I like that King, again, what made me think the thing, is he went with the classical flying saucer, right? Right. It was going to be that. When they're digging this thing up, it looks like some kind of stage, I don't know if they're digging it up. They're placing these props on the ground because they barely (laughs) dug about six inches down and this thing's totally revealed. They look like the boxes the lights came in. I mean, yeah, it looks like (laughs) luggage. Yeah, it's so cubic. Yeah, it's all these steps. But when we finally see it, I'm like, I don't see that design in in this little glimpse that we're going to see it when it goes to outer space. No, it's like an outdoor mall rotunda, not a spaceship. And they have, for some reason, they, they in order to run this ship, which is presumably, I guess, what they're ultimately wanting to do is get in the ship and fly away again, maybe? I, I feel like that, by digging it out, that's what they're leading towards. They don't want to take over the world. It feels like they need humans to use as batteries to somehow keep living. Uh, because I read the book... I know that it kept expanding and it kept bleeding over to other towns and there were forest fires and nosebleeds and it did look like, again, like Chernobyl. So this is the Chernobyl stuff that it keeps spreading, like radiation. There was no budget and again, there's no desire to really terrify people in that way. So all that we do know is that in order to power this ship, they need human batteries. So we have a shed where we have to stick some of these characters. That's where the old man ends up getting put in a crystal. The dog gets strung up in a crystal as well the sheriff the dolls took her to be crystallized that looked so bad that dog effect yeah again i feel like i like pod people it is terrifying to see people you love change into something alien and cold and you you can play with that but there's just too many ideas going on like that some people are in crystals in a shed one is in a crystal in the ship. We have aliens who have their own bodies and are regenerating down below, and yet they may also need the bodies of humans. Okay, so I'm not the only one confused here. You guys read the book and none of this makes sense, right? Yeah, it actually gets muddier in the book. Like, they really, oof. At a certain point, I was skimming because I'm like, I can't comprehend what you're talking about with wavelengths. And I'm like, wait a second, uh, humans are the ultimate clean energy is what I'm taking. Again, green energy, were they, was that some kind of joke? Was that some kind of pun? I don't really know. Uh, what I know is that this movie is trying to get through all of that and make this the story, as we've already pointed out many times, about an alcoholic having redemption. We've seen Jimmy Smith throw away his secret stash many times. Will he drink? Won't he drink? He ends up deciding he can be sober and fool them all if he takes some pliers and pulls out his tooth and convinces his wife to go into the ship. And I think in a marathon man kind of way, the gnarly thought of without anesthetic, grabbing some pliers and pulling out a tooth is the only thing horrific or memorable about this to me. I was like, oh, God, why? Yeah, I don't need man. Again, I've never extracted my own teeth. That seems super hard, especially if you're going to be sober during it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually the part where you need to be drunk. Yes. I actually feel like it's we, we won't judge you. How did he not wake Bobby up just screaming as he did this? 
And I like that Tracy Lords is the weaponsmith. I mean, Jacob, you mentioned the lipstick laser, green, of course. And then she gives Robert Carradine some big steampunk rifle. She feels dangerous with that lipstick. In a Catwoman way. I mean, in a Batman 66, very silly, not at all scary kind of way. Well, yes, except one single twist of the lipstick and Jimmy Smith's is dead. Uh, again, lipstick. <laughs> She's firing lipstick at you. That's scary. At no point could you get through a meeting pitching that and people not laughing. I mean, again, so why not lean into the comedy? It seems strange that they're not trying to maximum overdrive this and really yuck it up. It's never strange that people don't say, let's make it more like maximum overdrive. And yet it is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's begging for it. Uh, that's what I'm really saying. I mean, it does have the, the vending machine. <laughs> Yeah, that vending machine's got some teeth and it bites down on the sheriff's arm. That I couldn't believe. I mean, we had a conversation off air last week saying we're doing Tommy Knockers next. And you guys mentioned vending machine. And I'm like, no, you're confused. It's maximum. When this vending machine bites down, I'm like, son of a bitch. And then it explodes. <laughs> what the fuck? I'm... It flew in the book. I mean, it, I guess they didn't even have the budget for that, but they really <laughs> <It> like. flew? <laughs> I feel like because it's Coca-Cola specifically, cocaine, Coca-Cola, like King was trying to do something there with the drug references. Except this is Cola-Cola or something. They didn't get the Coca-Cola license or logo. and <laughs> I can't imagine why not. Why wouldn't Coke want to be a part of this production? I'll never know. Agnes DePesta is eating snacks crackers, but it looks like the Ritz box. You know how TV does that. The fruity circles instead of Fruit Loops. Here's the funny thing. No matter how bad a movie like this is, there's always a part of us that wants to know, okay, but what's the thing at the center? I still want to get into the ship. I still want to know what's the big reveal. What does it look like? What's it going to do? There's still a reason to hang around for night two and ride that elevator down and see what this has all been about. Really? You still have hope? No, hope is not the right word. Curiosity. Yeah, you want to see it until you get into this traveling carnival funhouse of a spaceship, like with these bad rubber props. Yeah, you always want to see what you've been teased this whole time. And yeah, they're not really, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, it's not worth it. I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and say certainly no one felt rewarded for all the time spent here. It's longer than I thought it would be. There's a good 20 minutes of them running around in this spaceship with crystal axes and aliens on gyrospheres the thing i found funniest about that old fangoria magazine is every photo is an alien or jimmy smith's fighting an alien if you just saw that article you'd think this entire thing was alien fights start to finish did they light those photographs better so it actually looked engaging because again this is bad it's bad but uh in the way that you would expect any tv movie about aliens to be in 93 I think this actually is below my expectations. It It's worse than the It Spider. Mm, I don't know why. I mean, at least that took some craft. Uh, it had some stop motion artists behind it. These are rubber alien puppets. I feel it is just as under... In fact, I feel like it's the same climax. It, it's not surprising that this was written by the same person. A lot about it feels identical in that you okay we're finally here we're gonna see what it really is and you go oh this is not very good but i do like the fact that the poet's gonna like strap down and use scanner power to like blow him up or whatever like i i just wish he was reciting couplets when he did it if we could get like <laughs> killer poetry readings that would be really fun again camp it up make me laugh 
does the steel plate not matter anymore because they talk about how this ship is driven by a psychic alien and he's going to use his psychic powers or his brain waves I guess to move this thing and they talk about that steel plate so much I thought that was going to be a big deal but no he's just able to fly it at the end Explain to me what happens with Bobby, because Bobby is there, and he's convinced Bobby I'm becoming, and the reason the two of them go to the ship is, he's like, you found the ship first, they're going to take it from you, let's go dig up the ship, and Bobby is like all into it, they have gross sex with her peeling skin and her toothless smile, and they go out there and they dig and they get on the ship, and then Bobby realizes she's been tricked, and then does Bobby start to transform? form into an alien i think that she has a psychic link with a particular alien i think what they're trying to tell us it's a one-for-one relationship every time someone else hears a tommy knocker it's a different one of them and so luckily for them there's the exact number that they need in the town uh, that is possessed (laughs) and so when he is able to you know he like beats this one Poor stunt person. Yeah. Yeah, when he cuts the head off of that alien is when she turns normal. That turns her normal because that was her alien specifically, I think. I think you're right because I got in the Fangoria article, it says something I did not get. That alien was supposed to look like an alien Marge Helgenberger. Did you guys think that looked like alien Marge (laughs) Helgenberger? I'm not sure what could make that look like that unless they actually like put her like face like no I no it didn't look like any of the people. That's what they were saying is in the Fangoria article it talked about her transforming into an alien and I'm like I didn't see that I but and then they're like this is supposed to look like her I'm like I didn't see that either but then he beheads this alien and yes I put it in the plot summary because it bugs me so much her teeth are back. I mean, you can come out of the spell, I get it, but your teeth are fucking gone, bitch. You need some dentures. No, don't you know, as soon as you stop doing meth, your teeth come back. (laughs) That's how it really works. Yeah, that would be nice if it were true. Uh, Okay. Maybe they'll invent a machine that can do that. And it will be steampunk and glow green. But uh, yeah, she gets away with Davey. He's the light powering the whole ship. I don't know how the ship then has power to fly up and and explode, but they're witness to Jimmy Smith's final sacrifice. I think it's rechargeable. Okay, sure. (laughs) And plus they got the people in the shed, right? Like they still have some battery power there. And Tracy Lords gets choked out by the old man. Well, yeah, because there's, is it the kid that's a battery inside the ship? And then the the grandpa that's a battery outside the ship? Like they consolidate people. Yeah, I I don't know why the dog isn't enough, but uh, whatever. I like the book ending better, though, because when the alien power is left, all of the human Tommyknockers just die. Everybody's dead. That is a nihilistic ending. Well, it does feel like, yeah, someone hitting rock bottom, and it sounds like that's what King was hitting as he was hitting the end into the word processor. I mean, I do feel like, yeah, this is a statement about just totally annihilating your entire world everyone that lives in your town everyone that you know and yourself you're the character that represents you is uh he makes it to space it seems like he flies away and then falls dead in a pool of his own blood but where he's going uh, 
Yeah, he's not going where Richard Dreyfuss goes in Close Encounters. I can tell you that. No, that ship blows up. He's dead. Yeah, in the TV movie, he definitely did. I, in the book, I didn't get that impression. So all these humans live, except Tracy Lord's grandpa kills Tracy Lord's? <laughs> yeah, he reaches out and chokes her, I guess, with his last grasp of life. I mean, somebody needed to. She was, again, all of the loathsome characters meet an end. We had Joe the mailman, and he's going to get fried by the TV set. We have Robert Carradine. He's going to shoot that fancy shotgun at the metal, and it ricochets and melts him. Oh, the special effects were so amazing in that scene but again you you want to see those characters die that's that's what the abc will allow like we'll allow the most loathsome deaths but we won't watch innocent people die and most of these people are going to snap out of it get their teeth and yeah be ready for a sequel <laughs> no please no don't tell me there's a sequel to this oh there's more tommy knockers and there's more tommy knockers to come but before we get to that Jacob Stewart, would you tune in for Tommy Knockers? Jacob. You know, I think of the great works of cinema that tackle the follies of drug addiction and the dangers and the perils of that. You know, I I, I think maybe number one, Requiem for a Dream, the Darren Aronofsky movie. So, so troubling. I, it's hard to watch it more than once. And then I'd say right after that, we have the Tommy Knockers because, <laughs> look— if you do drugs, you conceive this kind of shit, this, this stuff that makes no sense. This is a warning sign, kids. I think that's what this book, it sounds like, and definitely this TV movie is a warning. Don't do drugs because this is the kind of stuff you'll produce. This is awful. Like we, We've talked about ensemble cast, and that could work. I don't even know what the ensemble is here. It just feels like a bunch of people thrown out there, and they're going to sniff some green coke and go crazy, and, and then aliens show up, and, and that's the end. Like I don't understand anything here. Maybe I'm in the midst of a, a cocaine addiction, and that's why I didn't get it. Maybe the problem's me. I don't know. But this movie makes no sense. There's no interesting characters that would have... You're saying 30 minutes you would have lasted, Arnie. No, first commercial break. I'm I'm going back to Cheers, Home Improvement, whatever. <laughs> I don't want to watch this. Even Coach is going to be better wings. than watching this Tommy Knockers. Yeah, Wings, definitely. Look, I thought about that Shining TV movie. I'd watch that again, because at least I could laugh every time they say... Kissing, kissing. I know what I've been missing. Like, that's going to bring joy to me every time. This movie brought me no joy. I was holding out like I'm on the the second night. I'm like, oh, please end, please end. This has got to almost be over. I'm looking at the time. And usually, you know, I, you know, a modern movie, you get like 10 minutes of credit. Especially if it's a Marvel movie, you got like 20 minutes of credit. So I, I'm always like, okay, I could take this much time off. I'm almost there. You only get like 90 seconds of credits in this. I had to watch all the way to the end here. It, it was a real struggle. There's no joy in this Tommy Knocker. Strong, strong, strong. Not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, let's get the obvious out of the way. I mean, I think we've already been saying it all podcast long. It's a bunch of half-formed ideas strung together by a cocaine fiend before he cracked. An all too convincing vision of an artist hitting rock bottom. It is not a well-crafted novel. And then you take it to primetime television in 1993. They don't even want to make horror. They don't want to make audiences recoil. They want to create content that facilitates selling consumer goods. More Coke commercials, less killer Coke machines. So that's why they never made a good Stephen King adaptation. All of their miniseries are inferior because they just, they don't want to do what Stephen King wants to do. And so given it's, this book on that network, the compliment I can give it is, this was probably as good as it was ever going to be. I mean, there was never going to be a flash of green in this arrow. 
it was always read, not recommend. I think the other compliment I can give is I to me, this is no more offensive than the Carrie TV reboot, the Shining TV reboot. It's it's what these ABC primetime miniseries of King look like. They're just these tacky, really sanitized, unfrightening, take out everything that would have been compelling about the novel and give us this husk. Here's my holdout. I still think there is a green arrow here. Like I still reading that book, I would like somebody to pare it down and find the Chernobyl meets Invaders from Mars movie that I would love in it. I know it's there. And J-Horror has taught me horror movies don't have to make sense in order to be good. Like, if they just tap into something thematically and, and shock you. But this movie is not shocking. It is very dull, and that's why it's a strong red arrow. There's a lot of green on the screen, and that's where it's going to stay. It will not be on our website next to this movie. But I got to disagree with you that this is the same as the other Stephen King adaptations. I still stand by that the first two nights of The Stand are some of the best Stephen King ever adapted. Ever for TV or for movie and TV? Movie and TV. Okay. I don't think that any of them are good, including It, which I think is better than The Stand. Maybe. Tough call. But I didn't cite them. I cited the 2002 Carrie and the 1997 Shining. It's as good as those. You used a broad stroke when you said all this Stephen King on TV. All of it is bad. That's what that is the broad stroke. It is never good. They never do a good job with it. I would say the stand was a, especially the first two nights was a good job and I did recommend the stand overall even though I know the second two nights fell a little bit behind. Blow chunks. Yeah. No, they had its good moments usually involving Matt Frewer, but I would even say that the Shining miniseries is more interesting to watch than this one. Because the Shining miniseries is terrible. And in the shadow of Kubrick's film, it's a joke. But at least you can watch it and analyze it and think about why did they make these different horrible choices. The Tommyknockers doesn't even have that to go on. This, to me, is the worst Stephen King TV adaptation we have covered so far. And I really didn't like that for Salem's Lot. But we haven't covered Langold years yet. I mean, don't don't be too hasty. And I think it's going to be a tie. I almost feel like I'm going to have to rewatch Tommy Knockers to flip that coin. I mean, I mentioned Not of This Earth. Tracy Lords was better in Not of This Earth than she was in this movie. Actually, the entire Roger Corman Not of This Earth was better than this movie, and that movie sucks. But did you know this is an Emmy Award-winning miniseries? What? Just like that awful Andromeda strain 2008, this one, Emmys too? Emmys are garbage at this point, in my opinion, if these kind of things are winning them. What did it win? Best Sound Mix, which I think is bullshit. I, <laughs> sound Mix? I could barely understand some of the words over the score. They played that score so loud. Yeah, that score is so loud. I had that in my notes. Like, that, there was times where I couldn't even hear what they were saying. It just <laughs> blended in with that score. Yes, and it won for Sound Mix. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> they didn't win for Best Miniseries or Acting Trophies or... Uh, yeah, it wasn't lauded. I mean, again, I think people knew what they were watching. No, but they can legitimately put on the front of a fucking DVD cover the Emmy Award winning Stephen King miniseries. Yeah, well, it is a shame. And it's not the end. Stuart, I think you said Tales from the Dark Side as some of these stories. Well, how about The Outer Limits? 
the revelations of Becca Paulson was made in 1997 as an episode of The Outer Limits. So you got the Agnes DePesto subplot from this movie stretched into a one-hour episode of The Outer Limits. Do they at least use a Jesus picture? No, they use Steven Weber. Oh, God. <laughs> as Jesus? Steven Weber directed the episode and starred as the voice telling her to do bad things. And she was obsessed with soaps. So I really thought it would make sense if he played like a soap opera actor talking to her from the television. But they stuck with the photo on top of the television that was in the book. And what it was is she bought a frame and never put a photo in the frame. And so the generic model in the photo frame is Steven Weber. And he's talking to her saying, your husband's cheating on you with that hussy. Let's build a device that will electrocute him in the television and all of this. And if you think that this miniseries is bad, imagine that little subplot stretched out. Poor Catherine O'Hara. She's better than Agnes DePesto, but she... Catherine O'Hara shows up to do that? Yeah, she is Becca Paulson in that. And oh my God, it was it was as torturous as Tommyknockers, even though it was only 45 minutes, but at least it's like only 15, 20 minutes of Tommyknockers. Just stretching it out for 45 minutes was really painful. That does sound unnecessary, but speaking of unnecessary, television did return to Haven, Maine again in 2000, what, I think 10? Uh, Sci-Fi Channel had Haven, a whole show dedicated to this town. They couldn't use the characters... Nope, they're completely <laughs> unrelated to this book. It is a different Haven. What? There's two Haven mains? Remember the Dark Tower? Remember there's alternate realities? There are other worlds than these. There are two havens. The Haven Main of the Tommyknockers is an inland city. The Haven Main of the Colorado Kid is a coastal city. The Colorado Kid is a trilogy of books starting with the first one called the colorado kid that was adapted to a television series called haven oh okay that makes sense because i did watch the first two episodes just to be like what the hell there are no aliens there are no tommy knockers but it's kind of like a twin peaksy thing there's this fbi agent who rolls into town and she has a mysterious she doesn't know what who her parents are and yeah she may be this colorado kid or whatever that uh, yeah they try to build some kind of mystery around that but okay so not the same town not the same events no because i was i was equally confused and i went into my stephen king groups just to validate and it is a totally different haven a totally different reality if you will i mean most of the people said there's no connection and then you always get that one guy do you not read the dark tower it's all connected there are other worlds of these Okay, guy. Okay, I don't even remember that about Dark... <laughs> I didn't read Dark Tower. I don't remember that 90-minute movie <laughs> making a big point of that. But whatever. Okay, The point is that show is really bland, and it's got all that bad Canadian CGI <laughs> that like all those sci-fi shows have that you just don't want to watch. And... Which is worse, Canadian CGI or Canadian bacon? <laughs> I, I mean, I like Canadian, I like Canadian bacon. bacon. It's just ham, folks! Yeah! It's good, but it's not as good as American bacon. But there may actually be a legit version of this novel coming at some point. Yeah, bad news, folks. It's not over yet. They're talking about making a big screen reboot. 
I want it. I actually think that, like, why would we want a fifth crack at Carrie or another Shining sequel? The fun of taking, like, a really troubled book is that, you, as a sculptor, you're just trying to cut away all that doesn't work and find the thing that does. Find the root of what could work. I think there is, like King said, there probably is a good novel, a good story to be made out of all that crap. I, James Wan, in Insidious... And in Conjuring, was known for creating traps. You know, like his movies are nothing more than a series of little jump scare moments. And Saw, let's not forget Saw. Yeah, so I feel like Tommyknockers definitely had that quality. If they just create a small town where voices make all of this bad happen, that could be fun. That could be, if it's done in the right campy, creepy kind of way, I could be on board. Stuart, I reject your thesis. You say the fun in adapting a bad book. Don't adapt a bad book. There's enough good books out there that you could adapt. No, Jaws is a terrible book. Many people will argue you're better off making a mediocre potboiler than you are a classic because the classics always disappoint. But when you take something that people have underestimated and then you find something good in it, I wouldn't be surprised if they made a great Tommy Knockers movie. I would. It's a bad book. It's a worse TV show. No, I don't want them to Tommy knock on my door anymore. But let's move on to some more Stephen King. Next week, we're going to do another one. I read this book when it was a new release. I haven't read it since. I remember loving it. The Dark Half. Never heard of it. I came to this one because when we were covering Living Dead and I was reevaluating George Romero, I said, let me go through his entire canon. And so I did watch it. Oh, this is a Romero film? It's a George Romero film. Okay, now I have a little bit of hope. I, I know that's probably folly on my part, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't remember it being one of his better films, but it is a George Romero film, and yeah, we can discuss it next week. But meanwhile, this Friday, how about uh, another... Crazy robotic gadgets? I was thinking, are there human batteries in AI? I for some reason think there are. I mean, I think there's batteries in human, like beings in AI. <laughs> yeah, there might be aliens. Uh, there's, there's sci-fi. How about that? If you want more sci-fi craziness, why don't you become a May patron and you can hear us talk about the Stanley Kubrick collaboration that one of you picked, AI Artificial Intelligence. Almost 20 years old, we return to that very strange film. Yeah, directed by Spielberg, written by Kubrick, or written by Spielberg, according to the credits. There's a lot to discuss there. It was a pick by one of our patrons. I haven't seen it since theaters. Kind of looking forward to going back. So thank you for listening, Jacob Stewart. Thank you for going to Haven with me. And until next time, shoot a pickle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Presto, Majesto, disappear. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Don't interfere with Just go home and dream. Dream of becoming like the rest of us. 
Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. Haven't started the novel, huh? And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Presto Changer Return. Presto Changer Return. Presto Changer Return! In the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Hours of fun for the young prestigitator. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to do it again. Do I? Do you? Do I? Oh, howdy, do I? (laughs) Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Not everyone has become. Your man hasn't. He will. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. The voices, they told me what to do and how to do it. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Do you love it? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You want me to call Doc Ward? No. I'm just telling me to drink a lot of water and get plenty of rest. Associate produced by Jason. I'm an expert on this kind of stuff. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Well, I'm scared to death. I'm going to need a drink to do it. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. One great powerful voice that will know more. Yes. Do more. Yes. Be more. Yes. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Just because I can't read your mind doesn't mean I don't know what you're thinking. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. If, if you remember nothing else in this world, remember this. God has come. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. If you're going to live under my roof, would you please live by my rules? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Inganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Let it be, fellas. Let it be. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Bye-bye, boys.
I kind of disagree with that because so much time is spent in the beginning with Becca and not Gerd. What's his? N- not Becca, Bobby. Bobby and not Gerd. What is it? Gard. Gard. My mother Jimmy, has a... James, Jim, Gard. Like, how many names do you need for your main character? But they drop but... out, Arnie. They drop out in the middle of that novel. No, no, I mean... I, they do. But let me let me say the name again because I was getting confused with my mother's digestive disease, which is called Gerd. <laughs> um. To me, she's mostly Dolores from Roger Rabbit 2. Okay. Roger Rabbit 2? Uh, I'm There's sorry. a sequel? I, I got two things confused. <laughs> and she's like clawing him in the back and trying to take him over the hill and in Invaders from Mars terminology. Okay, I thought that was a sex act. I'm like, I don't know to- the over the hill. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, again, I... I, I What does Alice Beasley get? I mean, she she basically oh, <laughs> you played Nintendo right now. <laughs> Sorry, that's my I need to take a medicine alarm <laughs> that oh. Marjorie set for me. <laughs> Shoot a pickle. Whatever the fuck that means. Is that a line in this? Oh yeah, it's Robert Carradine's idea of sitting at a bar with him. Yeah, let's let's shoot a pickle. 